Christ Church, New Malden, Sunday the 10th of July 2022, 9.30 service. Stephen Kurtz speaking in the series, God's Big Plan. Which bits are we to take literally? Well, you won't need me to tell you that there are lots of objections that people have to Christianity. And of course, probably the greatest is the existence of suffering in this world. Christians claim to worship an all-powerful and all-loving God, don't we? But if that's true, then why doesn't he put a stop to all the terrible things in this world? Most obviously, perhaps at the moment, the events in the Ukraine. It's a really important question, and one which, when we have the courage to ask it and wrestle with it, leads us, I believe, further to the heart of what our faith is actually all about. But there are other objections to Christianity as well, aren't there? Particularly its seeming exclusiveness in a world of diversity. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But what about all of those people who, for whatever reason, don't believe in Jesus? Are they beyond God's love? Again, it's a vital question, and one which I believe, if we have the courage to ask and wrestle with, again leads us further to the heart of what our faith is actually all about. Facing, in other words, rather than dodging tough questions, is the key to our faith in Jesus Christ growing rather than standing still. But another objection that many people have to Christianity is quite simply believing those things in the Bible. The Bible speaks of the world being created by God in six days, doesn't it? The Bible tells us the story of Noah and the flood and all of those animals going onto the ark. It tells us of Moses leading the Israelites through the Red Sea. It tells us, in a story a lot of people actually don't know, about Balaam and a talking donkey. It tells us about Joshua and the walls of Jericho coming tumbling down. And of course it tells us that story about Jonah being swallowed by a big fish. But it's not just the Old Testament that throws up things that people often find difficult to believe. The New Testament presents us, of course, with Jesus' virgin birth, it presents us with Jesus' miracles in various forms. And of course, as we heard earlier, it presents us with Jesus' resurrection when God, the Bible claims, raised Jesus from the dead. And for some Christians, it's important to believe all of these stories, without exception, literally happened. Start doubting the literal truth of any of them, the thinking goes, and it's the slippery slope to people picking and choosing from the truth that God has revealed. Other Christians at the other extreme don't have any problem with saying that these stories are definitely not literal. And they often present that view as essential for keeping Christianity credible. Some stories might be regarded as non-literal because they reflect a primitive understanding of life that we've now thankfully grown beyond. Or slightly more respectfully, that viewpoint might be presented because those stories represent symbolic rather than literal truth. 
So these debates have been around for quite a while, and occasionally rows about them cause major scandals that come to national prominence. So when Charles Darwin, in the middle of the 19th century, published his On the Origin of Species, outlining his theory of evolution, many within the church were furious at what they saw as an attack on the literal truth of Genesis 1-2, the account from the Bible about how the world was made, which, of course, doesn't include anything within it explicitly anyway about evolution. When I was a teenager in 1984, the newly appointed Bishop of Durham, David Jenkins, caused a massive controversy by saying that he didn't believe in the literal truth of either the virgin birth of Jesus or the physical resurrection of Jesus. Now, in both cases, Charles Darwin back in the 19th century and David Jenkins towards the end of the 20th, in both cases, they believed that Christianity was perfectly compatible with taking a non-literal approach to stories found in the Bible. And there is a sense, if we're honest, in which all Christians actually do this. The parables that Jesus told, for instance, are seen by virtually everyone as stories that Jesus made up. We don't have to believe in a literal lost son, that there actually was a son who ran away from home and was accepted back from his father, and so on. We don't have to believe in literal wise and foolish builders to engage with the truth that Jesus was seeking to convey through those stories, do we? And in fact, if we invested all of our energy into defending those parables as literal events, we'd probably miss the points that they're trying to convey. But the question that we're asking this morning is how we decide. How we decide which ones come into which category. How do we decide which bits of the Bible we're meant to take literally? Are there some bits of the Bible that it's important to see as referring to literal events? Are there some that it's crucial that we see as symbolic? And if we take them literally, we'll go badly wrong as well. And if it's the case that some parts of the Bible are meant to be interpreted literally and others symbolically, how do we decide which is which? What's our criteria? How do we escape being accused of just being arbitrary and picking and choosing what we wish? Well, I think a lot of this is about taking a critical view of the assumptions that our culture quite often gives us. And one of the things that I think can really help us quite a lot here is recognising how much we've all been influenced by an event that occurred around 300 years ago, which is given the name the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was a period where many of the most valuable discoveries in math, science and medicine occurred. And what then came with it, with all of those undeniably fantastic things that the Enlightenment brought... What came with it was a philosophy that privileged the sort of truth that's revealed by examination, analysis and reason. That sort of truth went to the top of the tree and other types of truth tended to take a subordinate place to it. The Enlightenment establishes a philosophy which insists that particular types of truth are the real thing or the top of the tree, as I say, other stuff a bit more nebulous. Now, there were reactions fairly soon afterwards against this. 
Romanticism was a movement that sought to show that imagination and beauty were superior to reason in providing access to truth. And more recently, the movement known as postmodernism has suggested that because all universal truth claims are oppressive, people can only express what is true for them. They can express their truth, but it's dangerous to make wider universal truth claims. So there have been those reactions against the Enlightenment, but despite this, we're still all basically children of the Enlightenment. Which is why we tend to regard 2 plus 2 equals 4, or E equals MC squared, those examples, as conveying greater or at least more tangible truth than, say, a poem like Shelley's Ozymandias or a painting like Leonardo's Da Vinci's Mona Lisa. And when a child hears someone telling a story and then asks the question, but is it true? They're normally reflecting that perspective that the Enlightenment gave us about the type of truth that really matters. Literal truth being at the top of the tree, other types of truth being more nebulous and really inferior. But, and this is the really vital point that I want to make this morning, this wasn't the case in the world in which the Bible was written. People in the ancient world were more than comfortable with different forms of genre being able to equally convey truth. And they were particularly comfortable with the idea that stories or myths could sometimes convey ultimate truth more powerfully than a factual account of something. And if we think about it, we actually do know this too. So look at this statement up here. The stars will fall from heaven, the sun will cease its shining, the moon will be turned to blood, and fire and hail will fall from heaven. And it continues, and over the rest of the country there will be scattered showers with sunny intervals. Now the reason that's funny is because we all know that that is a horrendous mixing of genres. The first four lines there are clearly symbolic, while the last two is the sort of thing we'd hear in a literal weather forecast. Those statements, the first four lines and the last three, are clearly not trying to do the same thing, are they? And it's silly and nonsensical to treat them as if they are. And we still use such metaphor and symbol today. But we don't always recognise that we're doing it because we decode it so quickly. So when someone refers in a book or a newspaper article, for instance, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 as an earth-shattering event, it is possible that someone could hear that and misunderstand it. They could misunderstand it to be a statement to mean that a literal earthquake happened in 1989 to cause that wall to fall over. But because we're familiar with the expression earth-shattering event, we instantly know, without even thinking about it really, that it's meant metaphorically, isn't it? It's referring to a literal event, but with symbolic language designed to draw out its significance. And of course, when we think about it as well, we're also familiar, going even further, with fiction conveying truth. Very often, fiction conveying profound truth. 
A few years ago, I did a talk to our widows group here, Half Shares, about hope and its importance. I wanted to talk about hope and how important it is to our lives and how transforming it is. And I illustrated this talk by showing them clips from four films, and here they are. I showed them a clip from It's a Wonderful Life, I showed them a clip from The Sound of Music, then The Railway Children, and finally The Shawshank Redemption. Now, three of those films are completely fictitious, and one of them, The Sound of Music, is a heavily fictionalised telling of a true story. But they all convey truth about the power of hope, don't they? That's why these films have had such a massive impact upon people's lives. That's why they've stayed with people when they're shown again, they want to watch them, and they really resonate with them. And it shows us how wrong it is to use the word fiction to mean the opposite of truth. We often do use the word that way. We say, well, that's absolute fiction when someone makes claims that we disagree with, for instance. But actually, that's a misuse of the word. Fiction can very often be used to convey truth very, very powerfully. And there are some examples, I believe, of this. So in the light of all of this, what about the Bible? Well, just a glance at the contents of the Bible should be enough to show us that the Bible contains multiple genre. It doesn't just have one type of material. It's got numerous types of material within the Bible. And so by definition, when we read the Bible, we shouldn't be taking just one approach to all of its contents. We should, at least in theory, have a whole series of different approaches depending on the genre of the material that we're reading. And as I say, the Bible contains a multiplicity of genre. So the Bible does contain material which is clearly seeking to present itself as a literal account of historical events. And when we read these parts of the Bible, we see that they even have the ancient equivalent of footnotes to show that its information can be verified. So take the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, for instance, which uh, narrates the reigns of Israel's kings and those of Judah as well. And here's just one example. After its account of the reign of a guy called King Jeroboam, it says this, and this sort of thing is repeated a lot in 1 and 2 Kings. The other events of Jeroboam's reign, it says at the end, his wars and how he ruled are written in the book of the annals of the king of Israel. Now, we haven't got this other book. It no longer exists. But what the writer is clearly doing there is saying, look, this is historical. Go and check it out elsewhere. And when we look at the accounts in the New Testament, for instance, of Jesus' burial, his death, rather, his burial and his resurrection, we see something similar, a little bit different from that approach, but something trying to do the same thing, because we see a very careful listing of those who were witnesses to these key events. And their names are carefully recorded, not just for sort of anecdotal reasons, but probably, almost certainly, so that the stories could be verified by those people who were still alive and could be spoken to about them. So here is one example. Mark's account of the crucifixion has this towards the end. Some women were watching from a distance. It could end there, but it doesn't. It goes on and says, among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and Salome. And then just a couple of chapters later, 
we have this example from the resurrection. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices to anoint Jesus' body. Now, we might think they're small, unimportant details. They're almost certainly there to try and add validity to what's being claimed as a literal historical event. The Bible is very clear that when it comes to some historical events, it's vital that they're understood literally. And as our second reading that Anna read to us made clear, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is certainly one of these. And that's why I don't share the view of people like David Jenkins, that old Bishop of Durham from the 80s who I mentioned earlier. As Paul said in that reading we had, if the Messiah has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. The reason why the physical resurrection of Jesus matters, that Jesus genuinely was raised from the dead in the full sense of what that means on Easter Day 2,000 years ago, the reason why it matters, according to the New Testament, is because it's the definitive sign that evil, sin, and death have been defeated. It's the definitive sign, the tangible sign, that means that we can have genuine hope we can have genuine hope that one day everything that spoils this world and makes it less than it should be, that God designed it to be, will one day be swept away and that truth can transform our lives. So there are some parts of the Bible which are insisting that what they say is literal truth that should be understood as such. Now that's not to say that a degree of metaphor won't be present within those accounts should draw out their meaning. So when Matthew reports the death of Jesus and he says that there was an earthquake and rocks split, he talks about this in terms of the death of Jesus and also the resurrection, he's probably, in my view, doing the equivalent of saying that the resurrection was an earth-shattering event. And the same goes for a lot of the apocalyptic language that's used in parts of the Old Testament when it talks about the fall of great empires, it tends to evoke very cosmic language, not because that's intended to be a literal statement about stars falling from heaven and all that sort of thing, but to say that when a huge empire like Babylon fell, it had cosmic significance in a spiritual sense. We get the same in the New Testament in the book of Revelation. When Revelation speaks about the great whore and the beast bearing the number 666, all of those images that we could find completely off-putting and awful. I don't believe it's intending those images to be taken literally, but nonetheless, these passages are talking about very real historical realities. The Old Testament uh, example I just gave talking about the fall of Babylon, I believe Revelation is talking about the nature of the Roman Empire what it was really like behind all the spin and all the glitz and the way it liked to present itself. Revelation is using deeply symbolic language to convey the spiritual nature of very concrete realities. So there we need a sort of nuanced response, I think, to recognise that it is talking about literal physical things, but it's using symbolic language because it's trying to make points about their spiritual nature. But then there are other accounts in the Bible which seem to go further than this and be entirely symbolic. 
So I've already spoken about Jesus' parables being fairly obviously of this nature. Jesus' parables are stories that presumably Jesus made up, but to convey really profound, important spiritual truth. And so too, I believe, and others may well disagree with me on this, but so too, I believe, are things like the Bible's account of creation, the story of Noah's Ark, the story of Jonah being swallowed by that great fish. All of these stories are conveying profound truth, I believe, about God's relationship with the world. And they're to be taken just as seriously as any other part of the Bible. If we take the sort of more solid historical stuff more seriously than this, then we're just buying in to the Enlightenment's agenda. So these parts of the Bible, I believe, are to be taken just as seriously as any other parts, but they're not, I believe, setting out to do this in the same way as those parts that claim to be referring to literal events. So let's just take one example, the creation story. The creation story, I believe, is making crucial points, crucial theological points, about God creating a world that was good and crucially giving human beings, you and me, the awesome responsibility of stewarding it and caring for it. And one of the real tragedies of people thinking that the only thing that matters is whether creation literally happened in six days is that the theological points within these stories and their relevance to things like our care for creation tend to get completely ignored. When people get totally caught up on the issue of did creation literally happen in six days, it is hardly ever, in fact, I can't ever remember an example of people who promote that view zealously being concerned with what Genesis is saying about creation and what we've got to do in the light of this. And I think it is appropriate to use the word myth for such stories, providing we understand that myth should not be used as a synonym for untrue. When we use the word myth to mean something that's a load of rubbish and, you know, should be dismissed, again, we're simply buying into that Enlightenment view that E equals MC squared is superior truth to that contained in a poem like Shelley's Ozymandias or Leonardo da Vinci's painting, The Mona Lisa. And we can go as far to say, I think, that some parts of the Bible may rightly be described as fiction seeking to present profound and transforming truth. So take the book of Job. The story of Job, 42 chapters in the Old Testament, explores right and wrong responses to suffering. And I believe it's probably of that nature. It might be a literal story, but in many ways it makes most sense to see it as a story that has been devised in order to explore and elucidate and get us to think about profound truths about the nature of living in this world. And it may well be that stories like those of Ruth, Esther and Daniel are similar. Sometimes we see stories in the Bible borrowed from the surrounding culture. We see an equivalent of the story of Noah, for instance, 
uh, in the surrounding culture, and that can disturb Christians. And they can think, well, hold on, what's, what, what's going on here? Um, you know, it can cause some people to have real doubts. But whenever those stories are seemingly borrowed, of course, they may be imitated. It may be that uh, we're never quite sure about which comes first. But whenever we see a story that's potentially borrowed from the surrounding culture within the Bible, we also always see it decisively transformed. We see it decisively transformed to represent the interaction of the covenant God of Israel with his people. And there are also, and it was good that Tim read it, it had to either be me or him without any hair who read that story this morning, those very strange stories like those about Elisha. I deliberately picked them out because they are really the ultimate in sort of bizarre stories seemingly in the Bible where we think, what on earth are we meant to make of that? You know, those boys mocking Elisha for being bald and him getting those bears or the bears coming out of the forest and mauling them and then the one about the axe head floating in the river. What are we to make of them? Well, I don't believe it's disrespectful to describe such stuff within the Bible, in this case, not in others, as folklore, used by the biblical writers to express God's involvement in the everyday realities of people's lives, to show that we follow a God who is, is, is as invested in the small parts of our lives and the everyday problems and difficulties that we have as the big national events. Now, there's a lot more that could be said on this subject, and I haven't really had time this morning to go into anything other than uh, a little bit of depth on it. And I hasten to add that there is room for debate and disagreement about all of this, and that I think that's really healthy. But acknowledging the diversity of genre in the Bible, rather than insisting on having one single approach to all of its contents, is something that I think probably is always crucial to reading the Bible in the right way and therefore getting the most from it. I want to finish with an illustration. Those of us here who are parents, grandparents or uncles and aunts, hopefully have a really holistic vision for the development of our children's education, don't we? Hopefully, those of us who have young children that we're responsible for want them to do really well in subjects at school like math, science and history, but hopefully, if we've got a holistic vision for our child, we also want them to love art, design and technology, drama and sport. Hopefully, we want them to make really good and healthy friendships because we know that that is part of the way that they prepare best for their future. We want them all, in other words, to experience the whole range of ways in which they can discover more about the world and its fullness. And approaching the Bible in the right way and getting the most out of it, therefore, is a little bit like having that sort of holistic vision for our child. Just as we want a child to experience the full richness of what life has to offer, not just to be narrowly academically focused on three or four things that perhaps have higher status than things that are seen as a bit more nebulous. Just as we want that for our children, so we need to recognise that the Bible that we've been given has a full range of different materials held out to us for more or less the same reason to help to bring us the full richness of life in relationship with God 
that he wants us to possess. And once again, just as much as those questions that I started with at the beginning, those potential objections to Christianity, it's wrestling with this vital question of what we're meant to take literally in the Bible and what we're not, rather than ignoring that question because we think we ought to keep up appearances, we don't want other people at church thinking that we're a sceptic or whatever, or maybe we don't want friends uh, outside church thinking we're particularly gullible. It's wrestling with those questions. It's being honest about our approach to what's in the Bible and asking the most searching questions about it and discussing it and expressing our questions and our doubts and our reservations and so on, quite often in groups with other Christians, it's when we do that that just like all of the different questions that we bring to our faith, that actually it leads to enormous fruit. It's only when we're asking questions and we're being honest about our take on the material that we're given within the Bible that I believe we can start getting the most out of it. And like all of those other searching questions, when we fully engage with it, it's part of helping to lead us further to the heart of what our Christian faith is actually all about. <laughs>